The purpose of this podcast is solely for patient education. It is not intended to evaluate, diagnose, treat, or cure disease. Views expressed are those of the podcasters and not their affiliate. Any medical questions or concerns should be addressed by the listener's physician or care provider. Listening to this podcast does not constitute a patient-physician relationship between the listener and the podcaster. We do hope the podcast can help enhance the listener's own medical experience. Welcome back to Everything Your Doc Wants You to Know and Doesn't Have Time to Tell You. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform about health matters affecting adults. From latest research updates to tips on navigating the healthcare system and everything in between. This is Kirsten. And this is Lindsay. Welcome. Today we're going to talk about dementia, but before we jump into that, how's it going, Lindsay? It's great. We had a really busy weekend um, with kids' events, but um, we survived and ready for the week. Excellent. How yeah. about you? Yeah, we... Uh, had a new treadmill arrive today, so I'm excited to try that out once we get it assembled right now. It's in parts in the basement, so we will see. I think it's impressive that you've wore out the old one. Yeah, so it was uh, 12 years, but my husband and I both using it. It is done, so time for the new one. I'm pretty excited for it. Awesome. All right, well, today we have, I think, a really cool episode coming up. We're talking about dementia and... Um, living well with dementia. So before we dive into that, we have a special guest joining us that we will introduce in a moment, but let's just talk about the definition and kind of overview of dementia. Right. Dementia is a broad term that means changes in memory and thinking that are beyond what is normal for age. And there are many types of dementia. Alzheimer's disease is one type of dementia that's probably the most common and known about, but there's many other dementias, probably somewhat something like 19 actual dementia different types of dementias that can be diagnosed. So that's my definition of dementia. Yep, absolutely. And just to list kind of a few of the other fairly common types of dementia, I would add, um, so like you said, or Alzheimer's being the most common, vascular dementia caused by many strokes and even larger strokes. Um, There's Parkinson's associated dementia, which is also unfortunately common. There, like Lindsay said, there are many other types, um, and then there are some dementias that are multifactorial caused by numerous insults to the brain. Um, There are also conditions that can mimic dementia, and so getting the appropriate diagnosis is really important. Sure, even over-the-counter medications or uh, medications that are prescribed for other reasons can certainly mimic dementia. Yeah, and sometimes we see it in dementia-type symptoms in patients who are really depressed or really anxious, where their brain is so preoccupied that they really have trouble absorbing information. So Another thing about dementia is they're progressive. Um, So that means that there's decline over time in cognition. And um, brief thing, so this talk, we're not going to talk so much about treatment, um, but just briefly, there's treatments out there that may slow progression, but there's no cure. Um, and in studies, the best prevention or treatment is daily regular exercise, a Mediterranean-type diet, and staying socially and cognitively engaged. And also treatment of underlying chronic diseases that could contribute, which would be hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia. So today joining us, we have Deb Call. Deb is the owner of a geriatric consulting service called Dignity Care, and she is one of the co-founders of Memory Cafe of the Red River Valley. She has a bachelor's degree in business administration from UND and a BSN from the University of Mary. Um, She has a master's certificate in geriatric care from the University of Florida. 
And she states that um, her extensive education and years of experience as a registered nurse were not what prepared her to do what she does today, but it was more uh, lessons she learned while caring for both of her parents who had um, two different types of dementias. And Deb's professional and personal mission is to lessen the isolation, fear, and stigma associated with dementia through quality education, active community engagement, and the creative arts. So we're very fortunate to have Deb joining us today. And it's exciting to welcome her as our first guest to our podcast. Deb, welcome, and thank you for being here. It's it's my pleasure. I'm really delighted to be here. So thank you so much for the invitation. Absolutely. Yeah. And we did your, you know, talked about you a little bit in your background, but can you just tell us a little bit more about how you arrived at what you're doing today? Sure. Um, I am a nurse. I've been a nurse for about 32 years and have worked uh, in a variety of care settings. Predominantly, my career focused on on being a hospice nurse. So I worked at Hospice of the Red River Valley for about 15 years. And then I quit that job about 10 years ago in order to spend more time with my aging parents. Um, and uh, my we knew that my father was, was starting to develop some form of dementia. We didn't know what type at that time, but we knew that that was, that was coming and he knew it as well. And my mother was also having some concerns with her thought processes and her cognitive strength. We weren't sure what was going on with her. It wasn't as predominant as it was with my dad, um, but we knew that there was something going on with her, her um, cognitive strength as well. So I decided that I wanted to quit my job at hospice and focus on spending more time with them. And it was really the best decision I think I've ever made in my life other than marrying my husband that was a pretty good one too (laughs) but I really really learned so much that I did not know as a nurse even though I had spent many years caring for people with dementia I've always gravitated towards the senior population I I worked as a candy striper in high school I worked as a CNA or nurse's aide in high school I volunteered um, in the adopt a grandparent program and college and and really my grandparents were some of my best friends so I've always really enjoyed and gravitated towards the senior population um but when I when I as a nurse when I started dealing with people with dementia and after having experienced um that role as a as a daughter as opposed to a professional as an RN I really learned that I knew very little about what the disease feels like as a family member and and really wanted to pursue enhancing the quality of life for people who are living with uh, various forms of dementia and also the care um, the caregivers or uh, the care partners the families and friends and clergy who are walking beside people who are living with with uh, some form of of significant memory loss. So I was asked to speak at a memory cafe in Grand Forks. I'd never heard about the memory cafe movement, which started in Europe about 20, 20 years ago. Um, but I was asked to speak at the memory cafe in Grand Forks uh, two years ago. And it's there that I found out about memory cafes. And I just um, decided, I, I, I just um, talked to the Alzheimer's Association in Fargo and said, why don't we have one of these here? They're fantastic. And she said, I don't know. Why don't you start one? And I said, okay. So that's how it started. And I, I met my co-founder Beth Yustanko and and she had a similar experience with her family member her father um, and she was very passionate about starting the memory cafe as well so that's where I, I am today and that's why I'm here today. Very neat well I think it's really really amazing that you took the time to um, kind of shift gears and spend time with your parents and help them out and um, then just take what you've learned to do what you're doing today. Right. And I think just such important important work so I commend you for that. 
Well, thank you. And I have seven brothers and sisters, and we were all equally involved. So I don't want to take credit for caring for my parents exclusively. We all had important roles to play, and and um, that was a beautiful part of caring for my parents. That's really neat. Very neat. I think from from the clinician side, like you said, we don't we don't see a lot of of issues and and the everyday how to to work with and live with a loved one with dementia. And I see often with families um, in the clinic who who are trying to keep it a secret from their loved one. And I don't know what what your thoughts are about that, keeping it a secret from from the person themselves who has it and from friends and family. And I don't know if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure, sure. Um, I think I think that that is a very dangerous approach um, for a number of reasons. Um, primarily because it it really robs the person who's living with the disease of the of the autonomy that they deserve and the the right to um, self determine how they want to live their future. You know, we would not dream of not telling somebody with cancer that they have cancer, or we wouldn't d- dream of telling somebody um, or not telling somebody that they have MS if they have MS. But somehow, somehow there is this perception that the people, if they're told that they have some form of dementia, Alzheimer's disease or a related dementia, that they're not going to cope well and, and they won't know how to handle it. They won't deal with it well. Um, and we just make those assumptions and judgments for people, um, without them. And I, I just don't, um, I, I just think that is very dangerous and very unfair, and it's it's really perpetuating the stigma that's associated with with Alzheimer's disease and related dementias because it's 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 somehow communicating very powerfully that this is so awful and it's so despairing and it's so hopeless and people are so helpless that have it that they can't even be told about it and and be given an opportunity to adjust and adapt and and create a new um, very beautiful life for themselves if they have the appropriate support to do that. So I I just think that that is a very dangerous approach and, and again, very unfair um, to the person who's living with the, with the disease. So I, I, I would strongly oppose that personally and professionally. Yeah. And so when somebody does have a new diagnosis, what do you talk about in terms of how family and friends should discuss it or, you know, be informed about it and the, the patient themselves? Um, how, how should that or what should that conversation look like? Well, I, I think it's important with this diagnosis to, to find out where people are coming from. Oftentimes what I find is is when you talk to somebody who's who's really afraid of the disease and um, and and doesn't want to talk about it, or they're living with a lot of denial or they just don't they just want to pretend that it's not a part of their life, either as a person living with a disease or the or one of their loved ones. I think there's a there's um something in their background, maybe a person in their background, a grandparent or a parent or a sibling or somebody in the background that just really um was not given an opportunity to live well with the disease. And so I think that there is a perception that the old hardening of the arteries and and the really um despairing and and grim 
um, focus of Alzheimer's disease and how people were treated in the past um, is is kind of the the perception we have going into the future. And things have changed so much, and they're in, in the process of changing so much right now and, and worldwide. There's a there's a global movement going on around the world that just that's suggesting that it is very possible to live well with dementia for a long time if people are are not pitied and they're supported instead if they're educated instead of uh, you know hiding information from them or you know we create a sense of helplessness and hopelessness when when people are treated with hopeless you know with a hopeless and helpless attitude so i i think that it's um things are changing or things are really changing and i think if people are are given an opportunity to learn that and to say there are a lot of people who are living well with this disease for a very long time here's how they're doing it and be given a list of resources or a list of people to talk to or or you know come to a memory cafe come to you know read some materials and read some of the, the new stuff that's going on online i think they can be very encouraged and i i believe they're very surprised when they find out that that kind of stuff is going on right now because it's it's very exciting and it's very new but most of the time we carry these perceptions from 20 30 40 50 years ago uh to our future and that's i think the source of some of the stigma um we just assume that it's going to be the same for ourselves or our loved one and it really does not have to be so absolutely yeah uh, yeah the i had a, a woman call me um not too long ago she said she had gotten a referral to call me for memory cafe from the va and she said that the va told me that i needed to call you and she didn't sound very happy about it but she did and and she said just to tell you she said i we do not talk about the a word in our house and and I said, is the A word by chance Alzheimer's disease? And she said, yes, it is. And I said, can I ask why you're so opposed to talking about Alzheimer's disease? And she said, because it's just going to make it worse. If we mention the word, it's going to make it worse. And, you know, I've I've heard of people who think that way. I'd never really engaged in conversation with somebody that did um, have that perception but we were we talked for a long time and I think she kind of came around to seeing that 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 doesn't have to be that way that there's a better way to look at this and to engage with the conversation and um, and we've talked probably four or five times since that um, since that time and I and I think it's just a matter of of uh, having somebody who is willing to listen and and support you and you know, just hear you out, not you know without judging you or, or creating a big division, but but to just kind of hear you out and support you and and offer an alternative way of thinking about something like uh, Alzheimer's disease or or related dementias. Absolutely, yeah, that's really powerful. So can you tell us, um, you know, you've kind of mentioned a few times living well with dementia and touched on that a little bit. How, how do you, through what your work and everything, how do you empower patients and their families to really live well um, and optimize the, the time that they have? Well, I, I think that our responses to the disease and the person diagnosed with it is, is really hugely impactful in how the person will respond to the disease. So, you know, much of the decline, although not all of it, of course, is um, comes from how we respond to people. And so if we are aware of that power that we have to further diminish the spirit of that person, to just diminish them as people and to and uh, dehumanize them by doing things like not telling them they have this disease, you know, it's... Um, we are treating them as people who are to be pitied and and then they become pitiful, you know, and we treat people right. as hopeless and they lose hope, you know. So I think it, it's, it 
it really depends upon us as professionals, as um, medical providers, and as you know, family members and friends and clergy. If we're in the, involved with the clergy, to really um, educate ourselves, you know, like I said before, and become aware of the of the resources that are out there. There are a lot of blogs. Um, there are a lot of uh, resources. One of my favorites is by a woman by the name of Kate Swaffer. Um, and she has a book that's called What the Hell Happened to My Brain. And she, she was diagnosed at the age of 49 with young onset dementia. Wow. Uh, she had two children in high school at the time. She um, was a writer. Uh, she lives in Australia. And she describes her experience of being diagnosed um, as a prescribed disengagement because she said she was told that she had um, early young onset dementia and she, her provider told her to go home, get her affairs in order, visit uh, nursing home skilled nursing facilities in Australia where she lives um, because she would soon be living in one and to really give up her pre-diagnosed life. And she went on to patent that phrase and it's used around the world in this grassroots movement that I've been referring to as prescribed disengagement because she said that's what my doctor prescribed for me to disengage from my my pre-diagnosis life and she said she was just appalled and she said who who would tell anybody to do that no matter what their diagnosis is what right, what is right. the benefit of that so she goes on and she says the current model of of engagement you know we give somebody a diagnosis um, we assess their driving and medications their adls activities of daily living um, and then we prescribe this disengagement so they're not supported to live that pre-diagnosis life and they don't have a real proactive um, pathway of care that's going to enable them to create new goals and to set new agendas for their life, to, to live life to the fullest, recognizing, of course, that they have uh, a change in their brain and how their brain is functioning and that will continue to decline. But we can do a lot to um, slow that process down by creating purpose, by maintaining connections with other people, by becoming even more socially engaged or physically engaged. And and um, what, what Kate did is she went back to school and she earned a wow. master's degree um, after this diagnosis. And she earned two other college degrees after her diagnosis. And she went on to create just an incredible, uh, she calls it the, the social disability pathway of support. And the, the ability, and the, and the word disability is highlighted and, and emphasized because she said it's very important to focus on your abilities and your remaining strengths right. and not, not what you're losing. So she has in, the, in her, um, her ideas for supporting a terminal progressive chronic illness would be to receive counseling for the loss and grief that's associated with this. And nobody's denying that, that it is a grievous process. Nobody wants to be told they have any chronic progressive disease, including, and sometimes especially a form of dementia, and we understand that. Um, but right. they should have their abilities assessed, not just their disabilities, and it should be for today and not the what-ifs or what's down the road. Right. Uh, focus on the quality of life and well-being, uh, support to remain actively employed if you're working. And so she said, you know, she talks about how dementia is an actual formal UN-sanctioned disability, but we treat it as a disease instead of a disability. So when she went back to school, she demanded to have support as a disability like other people with disabilities receive when they go to college. And sure. and she was successful in that. So um, so she, she just is, is really a beautiful um, offer a beautiful example of a life that's really made a difference in a positive way after a diagnosis of of dementia and um she's got a lot of online she has an organization called dementia alliance international dai 
that has a tremendous amount of support and and people who are connected um, around the world who are living well with dementia. And so it's a matter of finding each other, I think, and and finding others who want and are willing to live a courageous life with dementia and want to do that instead of just staying home and hiding and isolating themselves, which is really the worst thing that you can do, um, I think. the worst thing. Yeah, yep. So having a goal and having a belief that you can maintain a high quality of life for a long time if you're willing to to learn and share your life and engage with others and learn new things and exercise, those kinds of things, I think is what I try to empower people or how I try to empower people to think differently about living well with it. That is really incredible. I think um, it's a different perspective than what has been, like you said, for the last 50 years, we've kind of sent people off to hiding. And so shifting that perspective, I think, is uh, really an important issue. Sure, sure. Yep, I think it is too. Would you like to hear a story about how we did that with my dad? I would love to. <laughs> you okay? He was just a, a great guy. He was a Western North Dakota farm boy. Uh, grew up in the Depression, um, but it went on to have a lot of different interests um, in the stock market and cattle. He was a, a businessman. He was involved in politics. He had a lot of different things that were, that were part of his life story, um, but he never lost his love for tools, working with his hands and tools. He loved working with wood, um, and he loved doing, he loved his grandchildren. We didn't remind him that he had 28 of them when we started on this project, <laughs> but he did have 20, big family. And so, um, we, we were started to have uh, a, an awareness that dad was getting bored and he really didn't feel like his life had any purpose anymore. And, and that was very distressing to him and to us. And so yeah. my sister, who is a, an artist, got the idea of, of bringing dad to Hobby Lobby um, and looking at wood projects and tools, a, a wood burner. And just to know my dad, he and my father-in-law used to call Hobby Lobby and Michael's crap stores with a, with a P. Um, he had no time of the day for crap stores. That was not his thing. But when Jackie told him that they had tools there and that they had wood projects, he was very interested because that was part of his life story. So she got him to go to Hobby Lobby and he picked out some barns. He picked out a birdhouse. He picked out some rosary boxes. Um, and, and then she showed him how to use his wood burner. Well, he started making these projects, creating these projects for his grandchildren, who I, as I said, were very powerful influences. If we told him that he was doing something for his grandkids, he was very motivated to do that. Um, but after a period of months, he started losing interest. And so my brother, who was an attorney, said, Dad is a businessman. Of course he doesn't. He doesn't, if we're calling this work. He needs to be paid for his work. He was a big volunteer guy, but he wanted. Sure. If we were saying you're going to work today, and we called this his line of work, then then we needed to pay him for it. So Mike said, "Dad, I'm so sorry. We're, we're expecting you to get up and go to work every day on these projects. We should be paying you for it." And he looked up at my brother and he said, "You're right. You should be." And so <laughs> they agreed to write a contract, and they signed a contract for twenty five dollars a project, which was highly motivational to Dad. He did a number more of these projects. That's really neat. But then one day going to Hobby Lobby with Jackie again, he turned to her and he said, aren't you the one that got me going in this line of work? And Jackie said, yes, I am. And he said, well, do you think I've been doing a good job? You've been doing a great job, Dad. Yes. And he said, well, don't you think I, should be, I deserve a raise? He said, I've been doing this for a heck of a long time. <laughs> and Jackie said, well, yeah, I guess you do. How, how about $35, Dad? And he, he said, no, actually, I was thinking 40 I think I deserve 40 <laughs> oh, <nice. You> know? <laughs> 
So, you know, therefore, you were talking about maintaining the dignity of somebody and using their life story in a very significant way to bring purpose and meaning to their life and, and to allow them to feel like their time is valuable to, to themselves and to others around them. So I, I just think that was, was so powerful. And in my family, how my siblings got together and, and created this, this purpose-driven life for dad for a long time. And I, I believe that's possible yeah. for everybody. Yep. That right. right. That is really amazing. And I think even my patients without dementia, but my older patients right. especially, really yeah. struggle with finding that purpose. And I try to come, you know, I'll encourage them, write your stories or tell your stories or do something. But I think having having maybe family help people kind of find something that can help give them purpose is so important. Right, right. And you have to be willing to think outside the box. You know, when I'm working with, with families as a consultant, it's, it's it's a little bit frustrating for me oftentimes because they'll think, oh, no, dad would never do that. Oh, mom would never do that. No, that's not going to work. No, uh, no, no, that's that's kind of crazy. We're not going to try that, you know. And so I, I think it's really important for us to to um, shift and to and to change our mindset. Um, the person who's living with a significant, and we're talking about further along in the disease now. You know, they're they've they're losing the ability to to shift their focus and to and to adapt and to do those things. Right. We're the ones as the caregivers and the care providers that have to do that, and we have to be able to change um, because they can't do that anymore. So it's up to us to adapt and to change and to rethink things and to be creative and to think outside the box because what used to work is probably not going to work forever. So we, we are constantly tasked with the idea of, of finding new things to do that will offer purpose and meaning and significance to the person um, instead of marginalizing them repeatedly and um, just having them sit and and get depressed and anxious and discouraged. So I think along those lines about the caregivers and learning how to adapt and changing, um, I often in the office see the caregivers, the family coming, and even in the short time they're in the office, they they have arguments with oh, their yeah. loved one with dementia. And, and, you know, I try to say it's probably not the best to have an argument because they might be at the time where they can't reason or or use their judgment and reasoning in, in an argumentative way to, to, you know, have a good response. And it just causes agitation and anger with everybody. And so, you know, what, what do you, what tips do you give to, to caregivers for, I think, I think it's just our instinct as, as people to want to argue our point. Right, right. There comes a time when it becomes much more problematic. It, that's that's yes, it's very very true. Um, I, it took me quite a long time to learn that you never, you will never ever win an argument with someone with dementia. You you just won't, um, right. because their thinking and reasoning skills uh, alongside their memory are often often parts of their brain that that deteriorate. So there is, if my brain looked like their brain, I wouldn't be able to think and reason, you know, and remember either, and neither would anybody. So I think it's important to remember that this isn't something that they're intentionally doing to irritate you, or to frustrate you. And I it's it's surprising again how often I hear that. Um, Kirsten and, and Lindsay, that it's just, well, they're just trying to antagonize me. They're just trying to irritate me. They know that bothers me, right. so they do this. And I think it's critically important that, no, you know, asking somebody to remember, you know, what they had for lunch or remember an appointment, a doctor's appointment, even though we've told it to them a number of times or written it down, it's it's like asking somebody to sign their name with their right hand when they don't have a right arm anymore. You know, it's impossible right. mm -hmm. for them to do that. And so, again, it's an education piece for 
for the family members and the and the whoever is involved with with a person to say that is physically impossible for them to be able to do that. And so keeping that in mind, I think is very helpful. But but coming to to again and, and an understanding that that you're not ever going to win an argument with someone with with advanced dementia, especially helps because you just you just decide to apologize. You just decide to to agree. You say. Dad wanted to wear his Crocs in the middle of winter, and and until I learned this principle, I said, Dad, you know, it's it's winter, it's icy, it's there's got a lot of snow on the ground outside. You know, those those Crocs, those shoes with all the holes and there with no footing on them are probably not a very good option to wear outside. I didn't say it in those terms, but I said, you know, let's wear boots instead, snow boots. Oh no, no, he said, these are great on snow. They're wonderful on ice. They're <laughs> it's terrific. And and finally, it just occurred to me, you know. Put the Crocs away. Get them out of his line of vision so he doesn't see them. And then he just, it, and then it's over. You know, right, the, the sure. argument is over. He doesn't remember that he's not going to ask where are my Crocs. But if he sees them, they're very comfortable. They were his favorite, his favorite shoes, so he wanted to wear them. So yeah, right. I think it's up to us again to avoid the arguments whenever we can. To proactively, you know, know what the triggers are. Know what those things are. If your loved one loves Crocs. Middle of winter, then get rid of the Crocs. They want to wear their <laughs> swimming suit in the middle of winter instead of a snowsuit, then get rid of the swimming suit, you know. So I, I think that there are things, very simple things that we can do as caregivers to avoid the argument in the first place. Um, but then I think it's it's really important to to just, um, number one, you know, give them an illus- a, a, a choice, like, like they have a choice, and to remember that the second choice is generally the one that's going to be chosen. So if you want your, your loved one to eat a hamburger instead of a dilly bar, you'd say, Dad, would you like a dilly bar or a hamburger? And that might maybe be reverse. I don't know. That's not a very good example, maybe. But but the power of the second choice, generally people will choose whatever is given as a second option. Um, so that's that's something else. But if there's like uh, appointments I hear, I've told you a hundred times that we have this appointment. Now we're going to be late. And now we're going to be, you know, we've written it down. It's on the calendar. Or don't you remember? And and to just instead of that, say, oh, oh golly, I'm so sorry. I didn't I tell you about this appointment? I'm I'm so sorry, Dwayne. I, I'll try to remember to tell you about these appointments later on, you know, in the future. But to t- right. take the blame yourself and to, um, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to upset you. This isn't going to happen again. You know, those kinds of things. To, you know, we need to be able to swallow our pride and and to confess even when we did nothing wrong and to apologize when we did nothing wrong, you know, to, to redirect, um, to just... Um, live their truth instead of instead of our own and so i think that's it's really important to just go along with whatever is being said and then try to distract or redirect um into into some other mode but apologizing and just saying i'm sorry i didn't mean to hurt you i'm sorry i didn't mean to i, I didn't want this to happen and i'm sorry it did I, it, it's just amazing how quickly that diffuses the situation but it's hard for people to do that. Deb, I, I love that line, live their truth. Right. I think that's yes, very yes. good, live their truth. Right, right. We have a hard time with that because we think it's think of it as lying or fibbing or, you know, but really when we consider the fact that people are living in the moment because they, they can't live in the immediate past, they can go, you know, far back. But oftentimes mm-hmm. that's not helpful in the moment to moment and they going to the future is hard for them as well. So living in the moment, the present moment is 
really critically important and, and trying to remember that I think makes a big big difference to say they're living one minute, you know, one minute to the next and it's up to us to live those moments with them and um, not expect them to be able to reason and judge and and make um, reasonable if this happens then that will happen. They're not able to do that oftentimes anymore. So it's up to us to reframe our conversations and to and to um, try to figure out ways that's going to make them feel better and feel comfortable and feel safe. So Deb, you know, you talked a bit about kind of language caregivers can use and different ways they can interact. What kind of support or recommendations do you make for caregivers themselves? Because obviously that is an extremely stressful and difficult position to be in. I think it's important for caregivers to to um, from the very beginning for both the person who's living with a with a memory loss, um, or and the person who's the, the caregivers, whether it's the parents or the, uh, the the wife or it's the the spouses, whoever it might be, is to just from the very beginning, number one, communicate about what's going on, and to allow the person who's living with the memory loss to make decisions about what their future might look like, what kind of goals they have for themselves, what do, what would they like to accomplish. Um, and and that can be used as a barometer for the caregiver down the road to say this is what Dwayne wanted. This is what he. These are some of the goals that he had. How can we how can we remind him of this? How can we help him fulfill these goals? What how can we empower him to do those things? I think it's important for them to uh, instead of isolating again and and keeping themselves withdrawn into the the safety, but but really. Um, the trap of just remaining in their home. Um, I think it's important for them to engage people that they can trust and educate on their loved one and the disease process that they're going through and, and really um, build a village of people of support around them who can help and, and people who are knowledgeable about the life story for this person and knowledgeable about the goals and the aspirations and the dreams that this person has. Um, so building a team of people around them, um, community, Communicating those goals with with people like like your yourselves, your physicians, you know, if you're working with with other medical providers, to include them in some of those those goals and those ideas of of things that you want to do. Um, I think it's important for the caregiver to make sure that they're not giving up all of their life, and it's it's very easy to do that because you feel so. Um, you feel like your loved one is depending upon you, like, and, and they do. But it's important for them to feel like they still have the ability to make new friends. And I'm, I'm talking about the person who's living with dementia. And sure. instead of feeling like they only have one person in the world who will they can trust and that's their spouse you know um so i remember taking my dad to to a respite uh, an adult day program and this is a a family decision that we made after a lot of agonizing and it was something that we felt as it especially as a great big family that we should be able to care for dad on on our own um but we recognized that we needed some support and it, it was when somebody finally told me that this might be good for dad i i decided you know in my own mind that that I would be willing to try this and then the other siblings came along and we all decided that we would try this um, but I was the one that initially um, brought my dad to the adult respite program for the first time and I will 
I just cringe when I think back on the numbers of times I told family members as a hospice nurse to just bring your loved one to respite. Just, you know, just, just do this. You need this. You need a break. You need, you know, your loved one will do fine. And then when I did it for myself as a daughter and, and seeing the look of desperation on my dad's face initially, and and asking him, you know, or having him ask me, are you sure you're going to be back? When are you going to be back? And pointing to his watch on his wrist, it, it, it just breaks your heart, really. And I realized very quickly that that is not a just decision. Like I, I so flippantly said as a hospice nurse that this is just do this. They're not really what I was de- doing was dehumanizing the person saying they're not going to know the difference. Sure. Well, they do know the difference. And it's hard to do that. But boy, oh boy, I've, I've got a picture that I use with some of my PowerPoint um, presentations that show dad engaging with, with um, uh, I'm forgetting her name right now, Peggy, I think it was, the, the primary caregiver at his adult day program. They became really, really good friends. And they laughed and they honked it up together. They enjoyed each other tremendously. And it was really good for my dad to make new friends and to be independent from us and to see that he could do that. And they gave him a job to do because dad never wanted to retire. He always needed to go to work. Um, and so they had him delivering mail around the facility where he was in this adult respite program. And, you know, now I'm a, a really a advocate for starting really early in the process to say you need other people to be involved with you in this in this journey because it's going to be better for you both of you the the person who's living with the memory loss as well as the the, the caregiver the primary care provider or caregiver or bub Kate Swaffer calls her husband her backup brain her bub sure. um, <laughs> so it's really good for everybody and and a lot of confidence is built it's a lot of empowerment there's, there's a change of routine a change of phase a change of walls that you're looking at and it's just really good it's mentally stimulating and it's just physically really good for for everybody involved to to um get out of the house and to engage with new activities new people new routines those kinds of things so and then for the caregiver of course exercise the diet the you know finding hobbies or ways to to um, be creative to go laugh you know what what will bring me joy every day to ask a caregiver what brings you joy you know, how are you going to pursue that today? You know, what makes you laugh? You know, uh, when are you going to laugh today? And maybe it's just watching children laughing or babies laughing on YouTube, whatever it is. But find an opportunity to laugh or create one for yourself so that there is some joy in your life every day. So there are a lot of things that the caregivers, I think, can do. But it's, boy, it's a tough sell, you know. And I I know that from living that now um, as a daughter, that that is a tough sell. And But it's a very important one, I think. And I try to pursue it good information and nice to have both both perspectives i think right right one of the things that if i can um get back to the the idea of avoiding arguments uh, yeah one of the things that i learned and i'm continuing to learn is is how we engage with somebody when we're, we're we say we're going to visit somebody who's got uh, significant memory loss and i'm thinking to a clergy member who i was um who was coming to visit my dad and he looked so horribly uncomfortable he dad wanted him to sit down he didn't want to sit down he didn't he didn't have any idea how to engage in a meaningful conversation with my dad at that time and i i felt sorry for him and it, it was just recognizing he was a really good person but he just lacked 
the education on how how you might in, you know uh, engage in a conversation or engage in just visiting and spending time with somebody with dementia and um, I think it's important when we just as as part of our social um, fabric right now when we meet somebody we immediately stick out our say our hand you know and we say you know hey how are how are you today or um, what do you do or what's your name or hey do you remember me or you know we do those kinds of uh, things well that's those are not really very helpful conversation starters if you're dealing with somebody who's living with dementia and so I, I try to train people and train myself to say you know to stick out my hand and say gee you know Rosie you have such beautiful pink um a beautiful pink sweater on today or your hair is so beautiful um you know if I know something about their story I will say you are such a wonderful mother how in the world did you raise those eight children you know so you're you're greeting somebody with a compliment or you're, you're greeting them with a piece of information that will remind them of who they are and um what they've done with their with their life instead of asking them well did kirsten come to visit you yesterday you know did you have nice. did you sleep well last night did you have a good nap you know oh no joe did come to visit you he told me he was here just an hour ago you know and yeah. so we're quizzing people the very second we lay hands uh, you know on their shoulder or the very right. as soon as we meet them we're quizzing them and they never they never pass the quiz they always right. fail, you know, and it's, it's, and they know that they, they know that, that they're arguing with you right off the bat and say, no, she didn't come to visit me. I would have remembered that. Well, no, she, you know, so there it is, the arguing, right, right then and there. So, yes. right. yeah. so I, I read something recently that there, there's a, a suggestion that people make a list of 20 things that make someone with dementia feel better. And then if you learn, you know, once somebody learns one to write it down and share it with the other people. So, you know, um, greeting them with a handshake or say, gee, your handshake is so strong or, or you look so beautiful or you're such a successful businessman, you know, those kinds of things. Um, instead of saying, do you remember this? Say, I remember when you were in high school and and you tipped outdoor toilets over, you know, during Halloween. That was a, something my dad did, you know. So he kind of hung out of remembering, oh, yeah, I did do that, didn't I? Right. You know? So instead of saying, do you remember this? Say, I remember hearing this story. You know, I remember our trip to California and, oh, we had such a good time. And so, so those things, I think, are really just kind of helpful day-to-day -day kind of tips that, again, are things that we as caregivers or, or friends um, or care providers need to remind ourselves of when we're greeting somebody and, and interacting with somebody who's living with a disease. Yeah, I really like that, that telling them their story, helping them kind of remember, rather than, like you said, starting with a quiz and having them fail right away on the introduction. Right, right. Yep. So stress well, I think let's oh go ahead. No, I was just gonna say when when everybody's stress level goes up, isn't it true that the level of functioning goes down? Um right. absolutely for, for, for all absolutely. of us. Yeah, it's we yes. all get stressed and all of a sudden we're not thinking it so clearly either. And that's definitely true for people with memory loss, significant memory Very loss true. or dementia, yes. Well, Deb, I want to make sure we have enough time to talk about the Memory Cafe, and you you discuss them a little bit, but can you give us a little more information in terms of what that is and what it offers to patients and their caregivers, and um, maybe where we, where we can find more information? 
Sure, sure. A memory Cafe is a is a free social gathering um, where where people experiencing mild to moderate memory loss and their care partners come together. Um, and and the Memory Cafe of the Red River Valley, which is the Memory Cafe I co-founded with Beth, um, has a mission to provide empowerment, hope, and joy through four different mechanisms. That's socialization. So we always have coffee and cookies, and we offer a healthy option for treats as well as the sweets. So people can have a cookie if they want, but they can also have uh, celery and carrots or nuts or sure. something like that instead. Um, we offer education um, and um, we're really excited about a book that Dr. Dale Bredesen right now about the, the end of Alzheimer's. It's offering hope for people and reversing cognitive decline and very excited about about some of the new um, new discoveries that are really being made about treating and even reversing cognitive decline. So those uh, some of the ideas and the education. I'd love to visit with you two physicians about that at some point as well. Um, Absolutely. Uh, the creative arts, we do a lot of um, art projects. We have the, the uh, intergenerational um, engagements. So we have a Valentine's project that we do a Valentine's party with a Hope and, and with the Hope of Oak Grove Elementary School students. And now in May, we have the Horace Just for Kicks little dancers coming to entertain us. So we oh, do fun. a, and we do a lot of work with art. Um, the creative arts is often an area of the brain that's spared by, by dementia. So we have had several arts artists come in and talk about um, and, and practice to teach us how to create art and um, we have a poetry session we found out that we have some beautiful poets in our midst uh, people living with dementia that are really beautiful artists and and poets um, so we do a lot of the things with creative arts last time that we met we actually had a a couple that uh, are taking a dance class and they got up and they demonstrated just very spontaneously at the dance moves that they're learning at the Y right now. And, um, oh, cool. and I think it was the jitterbug that they demonstrated. So <laughs> they encouraged awesome. everybody to come to the, come to the Y with them and practice the dance moves. So that was a lot of fun. And then we do a, a community engagements and social and community service projects. So we're, we're um, participants in the 5K at the Fargo Marathon because we just know that exercise is very good for everybody. And and we don't pretend that we're going to win the race, but we um, many of us will finish it. And, and some of us will be in wheelchairs and some of us will have our little grandchildren or great-grandchildren with us. And everybody gets a Memory Cafe t-shirt and we're all going to participate. So we really are big on on getting out of the homes again and actively participating in all of the beautiful events that are um, available to us in the Fargo Moorhead area. So those are the four areas of engagement that we that really focus on. But really, our goal is to remind people that they are valued and very significant members of our local community. By uh, our goal is to change the way we think about memory loss, and those Absolutely. are the ways that we try to do that. So. Um, we do meet three times a month, two, uh, first and third Tuesday of each month at 1 o'clock at First Lutheran Church, 1 to 2.30. And then we meet. Uh, we have a Saturday group that meets once a month at Dakota Medical Foundation on the third Saturday of every month uh, at 10 to 11.30 in the morning. And you don't need a reservation. You don't need a doctor's orders you know, to participate. You don't, it doesn't cost anything. So you, people can just show up and, and um we have about 40 to 50 people that are engaged in the in the Tuesday group now. So um, people are saying, you know, it's okay for me to admit that I've got something wrong with how my brain is working right now. It's changing. And I'm, right. I'm not going to hide. I'm not going to pretend that's not the case. And we don't focus on that, but we admit that that's, that is an issue. And we, we're just in this together. So 
uh, beautiful new friendships are forming and, and people are connecting outside of Memory Cafe and going to movies and going out to eat. And it's it's just a really a, a really powerful experience that I'm just delighted to be a part of. It's just been really a blessing to me and Beth to be uh, to meet all these new friends and and to see so many um, exciting things going on in the world of of empowering people who are living with with dementia. Yeah, what an amazing program, and I'm so glad that we have it here in our community. Yeah, one that's just started in Detroit Lakes as well. Uh, they just started a couple months ago, and there's, uh, like as I mentioned, the one, the first one in North Dakota was up in Grand Forks. So um, that's a Calvary Lutheran Church up in Grand Forks. So now we have um, two in North Dakota. I'd love to have it sure. in every town in the state, but that's absolutely. Uh, yeah, yes. I should mention too that it's not just for people who are living with dementia. We also have, it's, it's memory loss. That's why we talk about memory loss because it's, we do have some people with traumatic brain injury who attend and, and um, memory loss that's happened as a result of some other other medical reason so it's not just for people sure. with dementia although a high percentage of our of our folks who attend are living with with one form of uh, dementia or another and i think you have an upcoming caregivers conference could you tell us a little bit about that we do we are calling it redefining memory loss a living well throughout this journey and this is for the caregiver, not for both people, although we do have some people that are living with memory loss who are going to be attending the conference as well. Our keynote speaker will be Jane Claremont, who's from the, the Twin Cities. And she's a, a nationally recognized leader and consultant in providing um, care for those living with Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. And she is just so focused on creating a wonderful, trusting, loving relationship and maintaining that relationship throughout the course of, of the dementia disease process. And she just speaks to the power of that, how we can avoid these arguments, how we can engage in a productive um, life well into the disease process, how we can help people redefine their goals and redefine their lives and um, create meaning and passions and, and and instead of just disengaging from life and everything that held significance to us before the diagnosis. So she is um, just a wonderful woman. She helped us care for my dad. I, much of what I know I learned from Jane. Um, she's just a beautiful, passionate, entertaining, and really um, wonderful keynote speaker. So we are really, really honored to have Jane coming to speak to us. Um, so the conference is on Thursday, June 6th, and it's from 1230 until 4 o'clock at the Hilton Garden Inn in Fargo. Um, it has been approved for two and a half hours of social work credit by the North Dakota Board of Social Workers. Um, and for those folks, it costs $25 to attend. Otherwise, for community members, it's only $10 for the whole afternoon. So um, we're really excited to provide this opportunity and hope that it'll be an annual event for Memory Cafe to sponsor a, a caregivers conference. And uh, we really uh, hope that people will, will come and really be inspired and learn a lot of good things that we're talking about it's up to the caregiver to learn, um, to learn these skills. And Jane will be a perfect person to teach us those skills. So I, I hope we sell out. Yes, I do absolutely. Too. Mm -hmm. I think uh, the Memory Cafe and this are such great resources here um, that that we need to to get out to the people and that um, are dealing with this, which is more and more every day. Right, right. And I might be I might be one of them. So so I've, it's, it's, you know, it's just, uh, but I, I'm really am filled with hope that that if if I am, and I've got the family history on both sides of my family, you know, to suggest that I might be at a higher risk, uh, possibly for developing this. So I, I really, it may sound silly, and I, I don't mean to diminish the 
the significant challenges and and the grief and the sorrow that's associated with having any chronic you know terminal disease but i really do feel like there is a really reasonable hope that's being generated through new research and through bredesen's programs and through memory cafes and people like kate swaffer you know that there is a really reasonable um optimist you know optimism that's possible and I, I i really am just honored and i'm glad that i'm alive at this time of of uh our our and then i guess in this, this season of of time to be able to say this is happening and it's very exciting and i'm thrilled to be a part of or changing the way we think about memory loss so Absolutely, absolutely. And I think the more we can um, spread this information and get the word out, not only to patients and caregivers, I think most of us are affected in some way by people living with these illnesses. And even as clinicians ourselves, we make the diagnoses and prescribe the medications. And sometimes that's where it ends for us. And so if we can um, have other really helpful resources for our patients and families, that's really, really crucial. Sure, sure. And I want to thank you. Gosh, it's just so, so incredible what, what you two physicians are doing. And not only just in your practices, but which is really significant, but, you know, through this podcast and uh, taking an interest outside of your busy personal and professional lives to care enough about uh, the, the well-being of your, of your patients that you would say, I, let's, let's have a podcast that's everything your doc wants you to know, you know, I, I think it's just really amazing. And I'm just really delighted and honored to be associated with you. And you're uh, obviously so passionate about providing well for your your patients. So thank you for what you're doing. Yes, and thank you. It's really our pleasure to have you on today. And we're we're hopefully can do this again sometime in the future. I'd, I'd be honored. I'd love to do that. So thank you. We wanted to do an update on the measles vaccine since our last episode was on immunizations and we didn't touch on the recent measles outbreak. Yeah, we're having significant numbers of measles being diagnosed. Um, We just want to make sure that you're being that you have been vaccinated effectively um, in the past. So if you received the measles vaccine prior to 1967 or during 1967, it was probably less effective. There was a less effective form of the vaccine being used at that time. That one was administered from 1963 to 1967. If you did receive that one or think that you would have received it during that time, we do recommend getting revaccinated for that. If you were born in the 50s or even early 60s, you may not have been vaccinated. And so again, um, it's a good idea to check with your healthcare provider. And if you haven't been vaccinated, we recommend getting the measles vaccine. It's safe to revaccinate if you're unsure of your vaccination history. Um, you won't have a, an adverse reaction because of that. So you you can go ahead and get revaccinated. And another group who should um, think about it again would be healthcare workers who either received it before 1957 or did not receive it at all. And in many situations, healthcare workers are tested when they get their job. But if you're not sure, check with your provider. Vaccination saves lives, so. It's important to do. Definitely important. We need that community or nationwide immunity in order to prevent spreading of the disease. And so if you are not certain about the MMR vaccine, that's the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, please check with your healthcare provider. And if you need it, please get it. Let's talk about our health pearl for the day. Um, today we weren't going to do a recipe or anything. We just kind of thought we should do something a little different. Yeah, I think um, we both 
we're asked to do something kind of outside our comfort zone in the last year, and that was to uh, be in a dance show that was um, put on to raise money um, as a... It was a benefit for a local organization that gives money to help... um, Addiction. Help with addiction, yes. And so we were asked to be in a, a dance competition, and neither one of us are dancers. And we are... Also, I would describe us as introverts. <laughs> right. We don't like to be on stage in front of people. And so um, we took this on and just how fun it was to do something that you're not comfortable with. Absolutely. We we did dance classes to learn our routine. We um, had to learn moves that I had never done before and um, definitely spent some time far outside of our comfort zone. And with got to meet new different people and get to know them better. And so um, I think this pearl is just sometimes you got to do things new and different um, to learn about yourself and, and to keep growing as a person. Absolutely. When you get outside your comfort zone, growth can happen. And you can also gain confidence from doing things like that, where you uh, do something that's really uncomfortable. Then when you are back in your comfort zone, you have new newfound confidence that you can handle different things that come your way. And we just had so much fun. Um, so you can have fun even though you're not comfortable with it. Yep. So health for all for the week is get out and do something different. All right. Thank you so much for listening. We value you as listeners and appreciate your comments and feedback. You can find us at www.everythingdoc.com. That's E-V-E-R-Y-T-H-I-N-G doc dot com. You can also find us on the Apple Podcast app and subscribe, as well as follow us on Twitter at everything doc one doc one. In addition to our Facebook page, which is everything doc, and you can also find us on Google Play. Absolutely. So. We're out there, lots of places to find us. If you are enjoying this and find this podcast to be helpful, please rate us and give us a review. Um, You can also email us if you have topics that you'd like to hear. We are at mail at everythingdoc.com. That's also on our website. You can find a contact us spot there. Please let us know if we can do something differently to improve or give us ideas for shows that uh, would be meaningful to you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.